conversations, find our seats. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, as you're finding your seats, you can open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And before we jump into um, just our Kingdom Culture series, it, it gives me an opportunity just to say thank you um, for the dozens and dozens and dozens of people that volunteered here uh, over the weekend to help put on Night to Shine. This was an opportunity for us to serve a, a really a segment of our city that is underserved and um, the special needs community, and is is this wonderful, beautiful picture of um, the Big C Church. We believe there's one church in Jonesboro. There's lots of different expressions, but Jesus has one church, and we get to play a part in that. So you see all these different gifts from different churches come together, and that's what the kingdom of God is like. And then um, there's also a picture in Luke chapter 14 of a great banquet where Jesus says, hey, I want you to bring all of the poor and the lame and the cripple, and I want you to throw this extended bash because this is what the kingdom of God is like. And so those were the pictures that were in my mind over and over as we look and we saw joy on people's faces that were being served, and we saw joy on faces that were serving, and it's just this foretaste of heaven, and I'm praying that that kind of joy continues because that's really what the kingdom of God is all about. It's about um, God's love and his favor coming to rest on a people and on a city. And um, Night to Shine was just a foretaste of what we are all about. So to all of you that volunteered, thank you. To all of you that prayed for this event, thank you. For all of you that gave financially to make this happen, thank you. It is a, a great and a rich privilege. All right, Matthew chapter 5. Um, we're going to be looking at the topic of salt and light this morning. And with that being in mind, uh, my family loves cooking shows. And so um, that's one of the few things that we will actually sit down together and watch. So there's been different seasons where we watch different ones. At different seasons we would watch. My wife likes Pioneer Woman. Um, I personally like Iron Chef. The kids like Chopped, you know. Um, but really, the, the thing about all of those shows is um, they make something that's really difficult look really easy. And so I, I think the, the show that's recently come out that more accurately reflects reality is uh, on Netflix called Nailed It. All right? So I think I got an image here. Um, right? So if you've not seen this show, it, it gives contestants an opportunity to recreate works of art by uh, famous confectionery artists, and um, they get a really limited time frame, and that turns out most of the time to be the result. And, um, and, and that's what it's like for us most of the time, if we're honest. You know, you want to try out a new recipe if someone's coming over for dinner, and you are missing an ingredient, and you figure out that there really is a difference between putting four teaspoons and four tablespoons of something in. And um, I, I'm not great at following recipes, to be honest. Like, I like to just experiment. But um, at the end of the day, um, over the years inside my house, um, all of my kids have loved to, like, begin to experiment with baking. And um, usually the, the suspects are brownies and or what appear to be brownies. And... Um, somehow, like they get the like some fl- some extra flour gets put in and some baking soda, and 
and I'm tasting it and wanting to communicate the love of a father to a child, but it's something that you just can't put in your mouth. Like, it just, ah, you know? Um, and, and this even happened. I, I'll, I'll let the person rename, name, rename nameless. Um, she, <laughs> one of two, uh, was making brownies, and she's like, I just don't think they're going to turn out this time. And it's like, they've just been in the oven for a long time, and there's just nothing happening. And so she thought she maybe put too much oil or something. And I went in there, and I looked, and the timer was on, but the actual heat on the oven was not on, and so I'd been going for about an hour. And so that's, that's just this constant um, give and take at my house. And um, but that's, that's a little bit about what we're going to talk about this morning. Like, when God builds His church and His people, um, there's something that you can see and look at and taste that is absolutely beautiful and wonderful, and it draws people to Jesus. And then there's this other idea when we take our cues from the culture and we kind of get absorbed by them that... Um, the, the flavors and the ingredients are off, and it looks like an episode of Nailed It, and um, it ends up doing more harm than good. And so we're going to talk about this morning, what does it mean to be a, a kingdom culture that has an impact greater than on ourselves? And what we're going to see is that the way that God actually changes the world first is by changing us. So he does this real deep transformative work among his people, making them into salt and light that ends up doing something in the culture. And then as he changes us, he changes the world through us because his work is evident. And so that's what we're going to look at as we look at Matthew chapter 5. If you have your Bibles open, um, you can stand with me. We're going to look at verses 13 through 16. And the only reason we stand is just to to give proper attention to his word. These words are authoritative. These words are inerrant. And these words bring us life and salvation. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, we want to be a a group of people that are transformed by you. We want to experience the power of your Holy Spirit coming to rest on us. We want to add flavor and light to the world. I pray that you would use um, today in a small way to transform us and that that would spread for the joy of our city. What a privilege to be able to gather as your people. Um, To do that, we need more than just intellectual knowledge. We don't need to just understand what this passage says, but we need you to make it come alive, and we need you to bring power so that we can live this out together as your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
So what we're talking about this morning is that the, the kingdom of God is a kingdom of impact. It is a kingdom of transformation. If anything it's about, it's about changing people's lives. I mean, at, at, if you wanted to simplify the essence of what the church is about or what your campus ministry is about, it's about this idea that Jesus actually wants to come into people's lives and he wants to change the orbiting center around um, the, that motivates who they are and transforms everything that they do to be centered on Him as the King of the universe. That's what the church is about. It's about life change. And Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16 shines a spotlight on the source of change, which is God's work in us so that it can produce God's work through us. So Jesus is in the business of changing lives. What I love about Scripture is that, I mean, it just matter-of-factly proclaims the kingdom of God. This, this passage has stirred me this week. This is what necessitated the Sermon on the Mount. Look at the end of chapter 4. I'm just going to read a few verses. And, and just think with me. If this is all that you knew about the kingdom of God, like, what would be the effect? Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 And this is Jesus. He went throughout Galilee. This is a region of about 300,000 people teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those who were oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond. On the Jordan. So if this is all that we knew about what, when we're praying, God, let your kingdom come. He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And what accompanies that is people are getting healed. Their lives are being radically changed and transformed at the core of who they are. I mean, just imagine this. All of the sick people in this region of 300,000 people are healed by Jesus. I don't know what that number is. If that's 10%, that's 30 thousand people being healed by Jesus. I mean, can you imagine, right? Hospitals are going out of business when Jesus comes to town, right? The mental health profession, they are shutting down because no one is no longer being oppressed. They, they are bringing all of their needs and all of their um, desires to Jesus and he's meeting them. So this is a kingdom of transformation. And this is the kingdom, whether you know it or not, that you are a part of if you've placed your faith in Jesus. The, this idea that the kingdom of God grows. It starts out like a mustard seed and it grows and it expands so that everybody can come and they can find life and they can find shade under this. This is a kingdom of transformation and this is a kingdom of power. So what need do you bring to the King of Kings this morning? This is what this is about. And so as we bring our needs, and we talked about this this morning in worship, as God begins to perform miracles in your life, in your relationships. What it does is begin to have this transforming effect on everyone in your relational network. What this passage is about is about the people of God becoming both salt and light. And there's two ways that those things can function. There's salty salt in this passage that ends up preserving the people around it. And there's light that brings real light 
to the whole house. And then there's unsalty salt that's worthless and thrown out. And then there's light that's kind of hidden. Like you wouldn't do either of those things. Jesus is saying, I want to put my work on full display through your life so that other people are attracted to the giver and the author of life. So he is teaching them who they are, and he's teaching us who we are in relation to the world. We're not supposed to try to be salt. We are salt. We're not supposed to try to be light. We are light. And so there's a way that we can live our lives. And that's, this is honestly what's going on inside this passage. We can live our lives in a way where people are enamored with us, right? And our religious efforts for God Or we can put him on full display as the source of power and as the source of transformation. And as we do that, people are preserved. Light is given off from the people of God. People are meant to see and taste something when they come in contact with the people of God. And the first thing that we see here is there is a proximity issue with being salt and light, right? I mean, this doesn't happen if we're just a holy huddle where all we do is hang out together. This is is an event that happens as we join arms and we lock forces together as we live out life in the kingdom of God, where there's salt and light, where there's transformation. So we we don't want to live isolated lives, but we also want to put on full display that He is the source of transformation in our lives. Listen, no one's ever going to meet Jesus because you pray before a meal, right? Nobody's going to meet Jesus because you come to church or you go to a gospel community. But people will begin to ask questions when we talk about, listen, I want you to meet a man, just like the woman at the well in John chapter 4. I want you to meet a man who has told me everything about me. I want you to meet the lover and the maker of my soul, I want you to meet the person that's come in and changed everything for me. And I remember, like, like being a, a new Christian, I remember meeting Jesus, and there was so much joy in that moment. And I remember, like, being joined to a church, and that joy lasted about two weeks. You know why? Because as soon as I got in the church, like I got a stack and a list of rules and all the things that I needed to begin to try to change on my own. And then I, and, and, and probably almost everyone in this room has had a similar experience. Well, you need to think about this and you want to think about how you handle your money and you want to think about what you're watching on TV and, and you want to guard your heart, whatever that means. And I was doing all those things as a 20-year-old man and suddenly the freedom that I felt in Jesus began to feel like chains, right? And so there's a way that we can pursue life and godliness that is a weight and is unattractive. And there's a way that we can pursue life and holiness that says, listen, I don't have it all together, but Jesus has been extremely gracious to me. And that is life-giving and that is attractive to the world. Listen, we have the greatest source of hope and transformation in the universe and His name is is Jesus. And he uses us as the canvas to paint a picture of his redemption and his grace, both in our successes and in our failures. So if I could sum up Jesus' teaching in this passage, I would say 
being salt and light means moving away from a look-at-me kind of religion to a look-at-him form of transformation. Like That's what it means to be salt and light. We're either going to shine a spotlight on our own human effort and our own piety, or we're going to shine a spotlight on Jesus as the hero. So this is about us as the people of God shining a spotlight on Jesus who changes us. Because at this particular point in time, I mean, gathered around Jesus on this mountain would have been common, everyday, ordinary people just like us, right? Who would think that we didn't have anything to offer the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And then there would have been another group that would have been gathered around Jesus. And they would have been those that would have been sounding trumpets when they entered the room. Right? These would be people that would take the seats of honor when they walked into a room. This was the Pharisees. They would wear these big phylacteries on top of their head, which was just a picture of their outward piety because they wanted everyone in the room to know just how spiritual they were. Right? And this was producing, this is what Jesus is talking about, that they're supposed to be the salt of the world that's displaying the transforming power of God. But instead of that, they're drawing people to themselves and they're laying burdens on people that no one can actually carry. So Jesus is saying, I want you to move away from a kind of religion that's all about self-effort and it's all about the things that you do. And I want you to be able to display the transforming power that comes from Jesus Christ alone. So... We want to, as a group of people, humbly yet powerfully display that God is at work. And that means a couple of things. It means we're not impressed with ourselves, right? I mean, God is at work here, but it is God that is at work. I mean, God is speaking to us as a church, but we want to put the emphasis on God is the one that's speaking. God is the one that's saving. God is the one that's changing people's life. We are not the source of that change. And we, and we want to just be a group of people that it's natural for us to boast in Jesus. Right? I mean, that's, that's the essence of Christianity. We can boast in ourselves. We can boast in our own weakness. And we can boast in Jesus who loves to save those people that come to him. And that, that's what it says um, in the Beatitudes. It says, chapter 5, verse 3, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right? The people that get to inhabit and receive all the benefits of the kingdom of heaven are those people that are most aware of their spiritual need and their spiritual poverty. Right? So the beginning of becoming a people that can transform the, form the world is know that we have nothing to offer in and of ourselves to the world. But we have this precious treasure in Jesus who offers mercy and grace in our time of need. And so what it's meant to do, this idea of being salt and light, is that as the people of God, we're meant to be a prophetic voice to the world. Last month, we celebrated the birthday of Dr. Martin, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. And listen, this is a powerful example of what it means to be both salt and light. Just by adding his voice to the civil rights movement and moving people from a place of passivity to a place of action... 
he both simultaneously shined a light on the darkness of racism and injustice and segregation, and he also began to portray a better way to live, right? And that, we still have a long way to go on Dr. King's vision, which I honestly believe is a a vision and a picture of what the church and the kingdom of God is supposed to be in unity and love and diversity. And... But this is a picture of how the church is supposed to function. We're supposed to, we're supposed to be a part of this world, but we also are supposed to model something of the world to come. And, and that's what Jesus is saying here. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So when people look inside the church, they're not looking for perfection, but they are looking for your source of hope. And so they're supposed to be able to somehow look in and say, I see that's what marriage is supposed to be. That's what parenting is supposed to look like. Not imperfection, right? I remember like everything that I've ever learned about the kingdom of God, it's not primarily because somebody like me got up and they began to teach me from the word of God, which I think is vital or I wouldn't be doing it. But most of the things that I learned about the kingdom of God, I learned when somebody said, hey, let me show you how I pray with my kids before I go to bed. Most of the things that I learned about marriage, I learned from watching other people, right? And so there was this attractive quality about that that drew us in. And so just as you go about living out your everyday, ordinary life in the kingdom of God, as you're on campus, there's supposed to be something that draws people to you. And it's not your perfection, but it's just this idea that Jesus is pushing you towards this preferred future that he is building for you. So As we're salt and light, we increasingly take on the values of the kingdom and reflect the king, right? And that's a great privilege for us. So I want to talk about three areas that I think are vital for us to recover as the people of God that will begin to help us become a prophetic voice back to our culture, right? Because at the end of the day, no one showed up here this morning to be part of an impotent movement, And the good news is that the kingdom of God is not impotent. It is a kingdom of power, and it is a kingdom of impact. But the first thing that I think would help us to recover that prophetic voice is to have our doing informed by our being. Our doing informed by our being. And what I mean by that, we talk about this often, is that we live in a culture of stress and exhaustion. We live in a monetized society where certain careers are seen as more advantageous and we assign a dollar amount to that and we begin to compare ourselves and our worth based on our bank accounts. So in that kind of monetized society, people become um, commodities and numbers Right? That's, that's the air that we breathe. And if we're not careful, that kind of mentality makes its way into the kingdom of God where we think there are important people and there are less important people. But the picture that we have in Scripture is of a body that comes together where each person does its work and our worth and our value is not based on what we do but who we are. And the good news about the kingdom of God is you don't have to earn anything. You don't have to prove anything. You actually get everything up front in the gospel. 
gospel. Jesus comes while we were still sinners. He dies on the cross. He's raised from the dead. He gives us the, st- the status of forgiven sons and daughters. And we get all that before we do anything. And He even gives us the gift of faith so that we can believe. That's the kingdom of God. And it's completely upside down from the kingdom of this world. And so for the people of God to begin to recover their prophetic voice of salt and light, it means we have to be a group of people that live by a different rhythm, right? Where rest is not optional for the people of God. And and rest isn't just taking a day off. Rest is ceasing from trying to prove yourself in the world's system, and the world's eyes. It's hearing the voice of the Son of God who calls us beloved sons and daughters and allowing that to be louder than the other people that are wanting to have you vie for their approval. Right? Even inside the church. I mean, there, there just are stereotypes. This is what godliness looks like. And there's a striving towards that. And Jesus wants to speak to all of us today to say, listen, you are my precious sons and daughters. And the only way that you can experience freedom is that you believe that first. And as we take on the identity as the people of God and as sons and daughters, then it can free us to actually begin to love one another. Like, we really can't love one another if we're needy from one another, right? I mean, we, we have to have all of our needs met in and through the gospel and through Jesus. And as we do that, we're actually able to give our life away. We're not trying to prove something to God. We're not trying to prove something to other people. So discipleship in the kingdom of God is relational instead of transactional. So this means that we have a relationship with God. And we don't live by the same values of the world, plus and checks and balances and pluses and minuses. We have this status in and through Jesus. This is, this is the reason that Jesus called you as a disciple. Mark 3.14 And he appointed twelve whom he also appointed, why? So that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. For us to be the people of God, it is this wonderful interaction with Jesus that he actually wants to spend time with you. What the culture needs more than anything is just this real relationship with Jesus. It's not this perfection But it's this desire that you don't have to try to measure up to anyone. But he's inviting you into this life-giving relationship. And out of the overflow of that, he begins to change other people. So I've got two illustrations of this. Um, I have an iPhone right now, and it lasts about 20 minutes. Anybody ever been in that situation? Right. So I've become really good at... Figuring out how long 1% can last, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so you can make it, so you can plug it up again. Um, and honestly, both inside and outside the church, um, you can make it a long time on 1%. But that's not Jesus' desire for his people. He doesn't want you to continue just to plod along inside of life, needing to be recharged. The kingdom of God is about experiencing life. And so the, the other picture that, that stuck with me over the last couple of months is this picture of 
a pitcher and a cup and a saucer. So the pitcher represents all that God wants to do in your life and through your life. And the cup represents your life. And then it's on a saucer. And so what God wants to do is He wants to pour out Himself into us so that we're a cup that overflows onto the lives of other people. Right, So that's a different way. Most of us want to think about all the things that we want to do with God apart from being with God. But God's intention is that we do. He wants to send us out to preach, but first we must be with Him. So we want to recover just this sense of doing that flows from our being. No one will be compelled by spiritual burnout. right? And so I, I, I talk to leaders all the time. The most important thing to, for me personally and our elder team and campus outreach staff is that they're able to run the race to the end. Because, listen, even inside the church, you know what happens if I burn out? You guys will get somebody else, right? Like, at the end of the day, like, the spiritual machine will keep going. But the only people that can change that kind of trajectory is the people of God that say, I refuse to continue to try to operate in life and ministry apart from the Spirit of God. The world longs to hear from a group of people that know that they are known fully by God, they are loved fully by God, and they are accepted. So the, the, real, the real power of discipleship is that you reproduce who you are. You can teach what you know, but eventually you're going to reproduce who you are. So for us to be able to impact a culture that's driven by success, that's living in stress and burnout, the only way that we can change that is to be a group of people that aren't mastered by the same things. That's what it means to be salt and light. Listen to this quote from A.J. Sherrill. He says, You have to listen to the voice who calls you the beloved, because otherwise you will run around begging for affirmation, for praise, for success, and then you're not free. Could it be that our foundational calling to become like Jesus begins by understanding that we must not go out to get love or earn love or achieve love. Rather, we must freely receive love. That is to be loved. That is your name. From that place, everything flows. The truest path to lasting mission in the world is through genuine communion with God. Right? So that's the that's the first button on the shirt, that we would be a group of people that have our doing informed by our being. Next, we want to be a group of people who swallow up cynicism with hope. Right? Not only is stress and worry the air that we breathe as a culture, but also cynicism. Cynicism is more natural to some people than breathing. Right? And cynicism is this self-protecting mechanism where people have been hurt by other people and so they put up their guard and they don't want to let anyone in. Right? They begin to expect the worst to happen. But actually what cynicism does is it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where if you're trying to guard your life and save your life and protect your heart, what's actually going to happen is you're going to end up pushing everyone away and they're not going to be able to come in and they're not going to be able to love you. So the antithesis of that as the people of God is that we become people of hope 
And hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is Jesus. Hope is we serve the God of all hope that raises the dead. It's not just what you believe can happen, but what you expect to happen. So listen to this. What if we as the people of God had genuine hope that God's plan for our lives, God's plan for this church, and God's plan for this city cannot and will not fail, right? How about if you believe that for your campus this week? That regardless of our spiritual successes or our spiritual failures, that God himself will build his kingdom. That he's the one that causes the gospel to grow. That he's the one that causes the gospel to advance. We have a God that raises the dead and there is no situation that is beyond hope. And I do, I believe there's a real invitation this morning and we prayed about this in the the prayer meeting before that there are people in here that have been absolutely just burned and gutted by the church and you want to believe all these things are true and it's just this picture of unhealth where you know if you have like this cough that's contagious and you just begin to spread it all about the room you don't even know that you're doing it God wants to come in and he wants to do heart surgery for you so that you can have a healthy view of him. Not because people are trustworthy, but because God is trustworthy. So I think he wants to do real hope and real ministry for those that have been burned um, by the church. So what this means for us in our outward mission is um, we have nothing to lose. And we have nothing to prove. So we can take risks for the kingdom of God. Like We can see things like Night to Shine, which is a, a wonderful event. But like that should be the norm in the kingdom of God, where we're celebrating and modeling the things that God has. So that's why I'm excited about this Love Jonesboro weekend. Just because it's an opportunity for us to begin to think out loud together of what it might look like for us to think like missionaries in our own context, right? I mean, we all can get jazzed up for a mission trip that's going around the world, but most of us don't get as jazzed up about the mission that's right in front of us. So God wants to help restore a a people of hope. I want to read this uh, passage to you. It's uh, Romans 15, 13. It says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. So we have the God of all hope. He wants to restore hope to the hopeless. And so we are, the truth and the wonderful thing about this is that hope is contagious, right? That hope is far greater than cynicism. So as the tide begins to turn among the people of God, instead of being cynical, we can be hopeful that Jesus is actually going to finish the good work that he has started in us. And that's, that's why David in the Psalms so often reminds himself. He says, why are you downcast, O my soul, hope in God, right? We don't hope in our structures. We hope in the God that rules and reigns over the church. And we hope in the God that lives to work through his people. So if we become a group of people, we regain our prophetic voice as we move from hope or move away from cynicism towards hope. Finally, another way that we can recover being salt and light, I think, is to move from being isolated individuals to being a light-bearing community. 
right? So it's one thing for you to be salt and you to be light and you to be salt and you to be light, but it's quite another thing for all of those elements to come together, right? So if you haven't seen this movie, it's totally fine. It's old, but <laughs> um, The Truman Show, right? So if you've ever been to Seaside, right, that, that's, that's the famous movie that goes around there. Truman Show, I mean, everything is about Truman, right? I mean, the spotlight is on him, and every, he has some recurring guests that kind of come on the Truman Show. But at the end of the day, it's his story. And unfortunately, that's how most of us live our lives, right? Everybody's kind of antithetical to our story. They come in, they interact with us. But for God's story to come and rest on a place means that we join all of our stories together under this big story of God where He's redeeming, where He's working, where He's saving, where He's healing. And the result is a city that's set on a hill that cannot be hidden. And the only way that happens is if we say, I'm going to say no to some things in my personal life so that I can join with you um, in the rest of life. And that's what we do inside of gospel communities. We say, I'm going to intentionally put aside time in my life and my schedule so that I can be cared for and so that we can pray together and so that we can go on mission. That is God's design. You don't have to do that here, but we do believe that it's God's design for everyone to be joined to life-giving community somewhere. So, I mean, very quite practically, that means that, you know, for some of you, that may mean taking the partnership class. For other people, that may be taking the next step and joining a gospel community. God wants to join your story with other people's stories. I heard this powerful illustration from a friend named Stephen Von Rain in South Africa this week, and he was talking about 1 Peter chapter 5, where Satan appears as a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And he unpacks that predatory cats, the way that they attack a herd is they run at a herd and their goal in that is to get individual animals isolated and off to themselves. And then they pounce. And then they have their way with the one that's isolated. And I just had that thought. I was like, that, that's what happens inside the American church so often. Is No one ever gets picked off when they're in life-giving relationship with one another. The way that things fall apart is when we begin to think that we're the exception and we're the one that we can do this. Listen, if you don't have two or three people that are in your life that are fighting together for your joy, they know where you are being tempted, they know where you need to experience life, then you are vulnerable to being picked off. So the, the goal in this talk is to say, listen, for us to be the church, we actually have to live life together. We actually have to pray and lift up one another and we have to seek the Spirit together so that no one gets picked off. Listen, that's what the church is supposed to be. We don't want isolated individuals, but we come together as the collected people of God so that we can model both the power and the presence of God that's at work in and through us. So, what is your next step for community? Where is God calling you to take a next step? That's not so that you make this church bigger or greater, but it's so that you can pursue spiritual health and spiritual life. All this happens to us because Jesus came into the world, and this king 
Instead of just taking up his rightful place of ruling and reigning, he became a servant. And he came in and he began to serve people. And he began to wash their feet. And that's a picture of what community is like. And then he gave up his life on the cross to take away all of our sins and all of our failures, to heal all of the brokenness that you've experienced inside community. And then he was raised again so that you would experience a life. That life is what's being offered here today so that we can actually be salt and light together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I do pray that you would help us to recover a sense of prophetic clarity and voice together, that we would be a group of people that have our doing informed by our being, that we would be a group of people that move away from cynicism and towards hope, and that we would be a group of people um, that move towards community away from being isolated individuals. I pray that you would pour out life. I pray that in this moment that you would begin to do ministry, that you would give people just the desire to believe and to hope again that you can actually raise the dead, that you can do the impossible, that you can move and work, and that you're going to do what you say you're going to do, which is work together, all things together for good. I pray that you would do that for people's collective church experiences where they have been hurt and they have been burned. Father, I pray that you would bring healing as we come to the table and you would bring joy as we sing to you. In Jesus' name. Amen.